All right. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Good morning or good evening, middle of the night, wherever you are. If you're watching us online, if you're in your living room right now in your slippers, I wish I was there, not there with you. That'd be awkward, but at, at home in my own slippers at home. But if it's the middle of the night, wherever it is that you're catching us, I'm just glad that you are joining us. Um, you, though, here in-house, a little special special to my heart. I love seeing you here. Special shout to all the visitors. I know there are several visitors here, and if I didn't get a chance to say, at least say hi to you on the way in, catch me afterwards. We got hamburgers and food. What a better bribe to stick around and get to know somebody, right? So so hang out. I'd, I'd love to get to know you just a little bit, tell you a little bit about who we are. Um, but let's get to the message. I am, I am uh, honored, and I'll use the word excited, to bring this message today. Um, because it's, I think it's radically different. We're in the, in the Gospel of Mark, and we start, just started it. So last week was kind of our kickoff to the Gospel of Mark, and if you missed it, you can go back to our website or through YouTube or any one of a number of sources, Facebook, and catch last week's message. What I did in last week's message was just really set the, set the background for the Gospel of Mark. And I think it's important that when you look at all the Gospels, when you're reading it, that you understand why it was written and how it was written that way. So many people look at the four different Gospels and they say, well, they're not all exactly the same. It's supposed to be the good news of Jesus, and yet they're all kind of a little different. So who had it wrong? Did somebody get this detail wrong or that detail wrong? Or why did they tell that story and not this story? And it's important to understand that the reason for it is because each Gospel was written for a specific reason, to a specific audience at the time. Now, ultimately, we know the audience for all the Gospels is us and worldwide. But if you're telling a story, if you're trying to get a message across to somebody, you need to know who your audience is. And you tailor your message. You say the words that they would relate to. You tell stories in a way that they would relate to. And thus, then it would have the most impact and the most power. Ultimately, all of the Gospels, the idea behind them is to spread the good news. That's what Gospel means. The good news of the salvation message of Jesus Christ. That's what they're all for. And in fact, it's laid out in, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16, 15, and 16. By the way, I will use a lot of Scripture today. In my teaching, I use a lot of Scripture. So bring your Bibles I use the New American Standard, NASB. It's the one I study out of, but yours might read a little bit different. They're all, most of them, are all valid translations. Um, but bring your Bible, because I encourage people to not only read the Scriptures, but to get them in context, the, the Scripture ahead of, the Scripture behind, what was happening. And I do the best to explain it that I can, but there's always value in following along yourself. So if you've got it, follow along. Some I'll read to you. We'll always put them up on screen. So if you don't have it, that's fine. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, reads like this. And he said to them, who's the he? Jesus. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The one who has believed and been baptized will be saved. But the one who has not believed will be condemned. Okay, that's, that's the gospel of Jesus. And that is the reason that these Gospels are told to begin with, so that you can go into the world and tell them. Now, the world is more than just one particular homogenous audience, right? It, at that time, it consisted of, of Jews. It consisted of 
Gentiles or heathens, the rest of the world is. Um, people, Greeks and Romans who are polytheistic and believed in Zeus and Apollo and all these different, and, and all over the gamut. And so how do you preach the same message, the good news of Jesus to all these different groups of people in a way that's going to impact them the most? Well, that's why we see the Gospels written, each one of them, a slightly different way. It's to emphasize an aspect, a different aspect of the character of who Jesus is. Taken as a whole, all four together, now you've got a great picture of the entirety of the character of Jesus, at least as much as as humans we can grasp. But going into the Gospel of Mark now, Mark portrays Jesus and tells the story through the lens of Jesus Christ as being the suffering servant. That's why the title, Jesus the Servant Messiah. And that in itself is a radical message. You think about that. Think about the time frame at that time when it was written, the audience it was written to. Even today, we struggle with this idea. They had emperors. They had, again, uh, uh, Apollo and Zeus, and you could be smote down from heaven with a, or with a lightning bolt uh, down from Olympus if you did anything wrong, or maybe it was just as a whim or just for fun. The idea of a Messiah, a king who would come to serve in humility, was not something that they would readily accept. It was not even an idea that they would have in their heads. And so from the very beginning of the opening of the Gospel of Mark, it's this radical idea that to change the world, rather than to have an army and a legion behind you and more and bigger lightning bolts and thunder from heaven than the next guy, you serve in love and humility. And that can change the world. That's a radical message. It was then, and it even is today. It's so hard for us to grasp the idea. We need bigger and more guns and weapons, and we need to speak louder and a bigger megaphone and a higher platform and more followers on Instagram. Whatever it is, the bigger, the better the platform. That's our chance of actually making change when, in fact, it's just the opposite. And that's what the Gospel of Mark talks about here. So think about this. A suffering servant Messiah sent as a sacrifice for our sins. The idea then it was written to the original audience, again, Roman converts to Christianity. That's who the audience was that Mark was writing this gospel to. Now, it contained a certain amount of Jews who had converted to Christianity, but it was largely a Gentile audience, right? And quite a large number of people who were polytheistic. In other words, again, followed Zeus and Athena and, and all these different multiple Greek and Roman gods. And they didn't know much, if at all, of, of Jewish history. So you don't see in the Gospel of Mark, you don't see him going back and quoting an awful lot of Jewish law and Jewish history as a justification or as a... As a, a um, precursor to Jesus coming. He hardly mentions any of that at all. He does a couple times, and we'll see some of that. But for the most part, he just says, Jesus is here now. Such a contrast, such a just a radical departure from what his audience would have been used to. Think about that, Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you're in this crowd, you're one, of the, you're one of the Romans who are hearing this gospel for the first time, and you're seeing 
out right outside the doors of wherever you are, if you're in a home or a temple, wherever you are, right outside the doors is Emperor Nero and his hordes. And they are burning Christians at the stake. And worse, if there's, if there's a worse, they were doing worse. And that's happening right outside the doors. And so these people had heard the news of Jesus Christ. They'd heard of the resurrection. They'd heard that he is the the Messiah and we should follow him. And at this point, most of these people had decided, yes, I will follow Jesus. Because what I see happening in the world is not working for me right now. And I need a king. I need a Messiah who's going to come in, kick butt and take names and fix all this problem. Smite my enemies down. That's what I need. And so they had accepted Christ and they had turned to that. And then... When they hear Mark say, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They had to be going, huh, how does that help me against what's happening outside right now? That's why it was so radical. And that's why it's really, it is miraculous and it is a, it is a thing of God that that message was able to attain any kind of, a, of an audience whatsoever. It was written to, the Gospel of Mark, that is, written to believers in Rome who were not seeing any benefit from being a follower of Christ. In fact, they were seeing just the opposite. They were, their lives had gotten exponentially harder because they had professed to be a follower of Jesus. And so they're faced with this, with this choice right now. I can either hold on to that, I can continue to profess my faith in Jesus and Probably myself or somebody in my family or somebody is going to be crucified or burnt or tortured in some other horrendous way for that belief. Or, since I don't really see how it's benefiting me, I could just set that aside or maybe even renounce it entirely and walk away from it. That'd be the safe move. Just do that. That way I'll be off the radar from from Nero and his people. That's where we are in the Gospel of Mark. So as we go through this Gospel, think about you're one of those converts in the audience and you're hearing this for the first time. You've heard stories, but now you're actually like, it's written out there for you and you're studying this and you're hearing it maybe for the first time ever and you're trying to reconcile in your head what's going on in the world versus why should I believe this? So the Gospel of Mark rather than to stress the number of lightning bolts and the absolute power and, and, and smiting your enemies, the Gospel of Mark stresses the, the acts of servitude, the inner strength, the determination and the humility of Jesus and how that overcomes the forces of evil in the world. Again, radical concept. Because power in those days was based on how big is your legion? Do you have more legions than I do? Do you have more catapults and more weapons than I do? Then you're more powerful. This idea was hard for them to grab. And so the Gospel of Mark doesn't emphasize the deity. Because we could easily go down and write our own gospel of here's what God did. God smote the Egyptians with plagues. He, he hurled down lightning bolts. He hurled down things on Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the power of God. And through his power, the Israelites were able to, 
to clean house on entire nations and tribes, killing every man, woman, and child. That is the awesome power of God. And if he would have wrote it emphasizing those attributes, they would have gone, okay, that's the guy we need to help us handle Nero. But that's not how he wrote it. What he did is emphasize the humanity of Jesus. And by emphasizing the humanity of Jesus and how Jesus was able to then stand up to and overcome even up to the grave, by emphasizing the humanity, then he said, this power is not just something that the gods have, it's something you can have. And that is what gave them the hope to stand up against the things that were coming their way, knowing that they had access to the very power of God through love and humility to stand up to the things. Radical idea. And they're trying to just reconcile this. By serving one another with humility and love, we can overcome evil. Can't we just have a little thunder from heaven? That's not what the Gospel of Mark is about. The Gospel of Mark, now you can, you can divide it, and we'll kind of do this roughly, kind of divide it into three parts. Chapters 1 through 8 are about the miracles and the ministry and the things that Jesus did during his ministry in in the Galilee region. Chapters 9 and 10 are essentially his teaching and his instruction to his disciples who were following him around. And then beyond that, 11 and on is the consummation of Jesus' ministry on earth up to and including the resurrection. So that's kind of how it's divided out. We're going to focus on, right now anyway, the first part of it, and anytime you look at Scripture, you need to look at it through the lens of it is a piece of literature. And each type of literature, or each piece of literature, has its own type. And we need to know the type of it. Is this, is this poetry? Is this a, uh, a historical narrative? Is this wisdom? Is this metaphor? What is this? You need to look at it through that lens in order to really understand What's happening? And so you apply literary terms and literary um, rules to certain things that are written. A lot of people will look at the Gospel of Mark, at least the first eight chapters of it, and they use the term eratology. Anybody ever heard the term eratology? All right, you're all about to learn something today. Awesome. You can take this away with you and you can sound super smart at the next party you go to. Eratologies, it's a, it's a literary term, and it was a very, very common practice in those days. It still is today, but really, really common in those days and even beyond, going all the way back to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. And eratology was a, usually in the form of poetry, but it was a story, and it was told in the first person from whatever deity you were trying to explain the virtues or the power of. So they usually started something with, I am. I am the God of thunder and lightning. Okay? And you would see that, and then that, that phrase and then the, the, the paragraphs and words that went along with it was called an eratology. Very, very common in the, in the whole Greco-Roman kind of culture um, of that day. And so what they would do, again, going all the way back to ancient Egypt and beyond, they would recite these. So it was, usually, it was usually more than just a line or two. Sometimes it was a whole book. And they would go into, they meaning whatever priest or whoever was, they called him an eratologist. They would go into the temple of Athena, temple of Zeus, temple of Isis, wherever they happened to be. 
and they would recite, almost on a daily basis, if not multiple times, these eratologies, all the, the attributes and the reasons that we should usually fear this God. It was rarely praise them. It was usually a, a fear-based thing. And they would go in. So, for example, like in, in Egypt, they had the eratology of Isis. And so they'd go into the temple of Isis all the time. And it started out with, I am Isis, ruler of every land. And it would go on and on and on. That's the pattern behind an eratology. There were ones of Heracles and Alexander the Great, but it always portrayed them as not only all-powerful or extremely powerful, but mostly vengeful, kind of scary beings. And the idea was, beware. Do what you're supposed to do when you're supposed to do it, or incur their wrath. So that was the whole idea behind it. Now, in contrast to that, the Gospel of Mark being called, again, from a literary form, an eratology, the idea is Jesus did perform his miracles, and he did possess divine power, but the idea behind telling of these miracles in the Gospel of Mark is not to say he's this otherworldly, godly, exception deity that we just all need to, to fear, the idea behind it is he was human too, and that's his example, and you can have access to that power. You can share in the power of Jesus to perform these miracles and to do the wonders and the things that he does in here. It's not something that's unattainable. In fact, it's offered to you, that very power. And so that's why the Gospel of Mark is written the way that it was, is to tell these people, I know you're going through all these persecutions and all these things, but let me show you how Jesus on earth as a human being in flesh and blood, subject to pain and emotion and everything just like you, here's how he did it. And you can do that too. Mark 8, 27 through 29 says this, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now remember, an eratology was all, it was told first person, so it was Isis, I am ruler of heaven, I am the giver of thunder. It would be like that. So Jesus, rather than to say, here's who I am, let me tell you who my dad is, he comes out in this and he says, who do people say that I am? And so they tell him, remember what they tell him? John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he continued questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, what's, who do you say I am? Not who do I say, who do you say I am? And so Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Now, if this was any one of us or anybody back in that day, then the response to you are the Christ would have been, you're darn right I am, and don't you forget it. Right? That's what it would have been. But what does Jesus say? Anybody know Jesus' response to that? Mark 8.30, we got it on screen. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Okay, but Jesus, shouldn't we get this news out? If it's, if it's going to save us, shouldn't we tell everybody about your power and about who you are? And he's like, no, not right now. Tell no one. But come on, they'll, they'll be shaking in their boots if we tell them who you are. 
now's not the time. Radical idea for those people who just like, I want this to do some good in my life. I want this to help me against my enemies. And Jesus is like, not now. When Jesus finally does get around to saying, I am, it's in a little different context. We know from the Gospel of Mark, John 6, 35, one of a number of places where Jesus says, I am. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will not be hungry, and the one who believes in me will never be hungry, will never be thirsty. When he says, I am, it's from a servant standpoint. Let's get into the scripture for this week. So Matthew, when you're looking at the Gospels, <coughs> especially Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus from the beginning. And their idea of the beginning is the birth of Jesus. So it's all about the manger scene and all that. We hear about that. Now, if you look at the Gospel of John, John goes back even farther where it starts out, in the beginning was the word. So it's going like a little farther back than that, all the way back. Mark is a little different. Mark is not concerned at all with how Jesus got here, only that he is here. And so that's where Mark starts out. Mark 1.1. Mark 1.1 is essentially just the title of his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so that's the title. Then we go on. The next verses are actually the meat of this. Now, to set this up, in ancient times, anybody of any real importance or magnitude or stature at all would have an envoy or a herald go ahead of them. And the one going ahead of them, their reason was kind of twofold. One, it was to make sure the road was okay. So if a king or a a dignitary is coming into a new village, traveling cross-country, they didn't have highways. Of course, our highways, you would need somebody to make sure they're safe now too. But they would make sure that the road was okay for the chariots and that it was safe and that there were no um, bandits hiding in in the bushes And then, most importantly, they would go into the next town, the next village, wherever they were, and say, everybody, he's coming, whoever it is. Let's get excited. Kind of a hype man, we'd call him, like, come on, let's do it. Let's, everybody, let's do the wave while we wait for for this dignitary to come into town and have a suitable reception for him. It just wouldn't do for somebody, a king or somebody important, to come into a new town to crickets, and nobody even knows they're there. You would come into town. You would make sure everybody knew so that you would have this suitable fanfare for the arrival of the king or whatever dignitary it was. So Mark 1, 2, and 3 says, Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, when you see, we didn't do it like this, but in my version, when you see capitals, that's harkening back to to Old Testament scripture. Just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, depending on your translation, especially I think the KJV is like this, instead of Isaiah the prophet, it says the prophets. And the reason it says that, just so you know, is because that's actually a combination of Scripture from Malachi and Isaiah. But remember how I told you they, these people didn't know much about Jewish law or Jewish scripture or anything, so Mark doesn't quote it very much. Isaiah was a big deal in those days, even to people who weren't necessarily Jewish. So by saying written in Isaiah, that, w- that would have maybe carried a little bit of weight, and they would have at least known who he was. 
But again, rather than the envoy's typical job of making the streets clean and the appropriate numbers of adoring citizens, John the Baptist, which is how this chapter opens up, he prepares the way for Jesus by preaching repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Doesn't sound like the kind of like, hey, let's all, let's all go out to wherever John the Baptist is. He's telling us all to repent and be baptized. That's not the kind of like super magnetic, you're not going to drag the kids out of school and let's go see what, what this prophet is telling us. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And listen to this, verse 5, and all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. That's amazing. When it says all the country, I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. People were coming from all over the place to hear this message. That's not, look, they set up a carnival on the outskirts of town. Let's, we can see the neon lights from here. They had, it was a journey that they had to actually go out and do this. And the message, the magnetic, enticing, exciting, attractive message that he was preaching that drew people in from all over the country was repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. That was a magnetic message. We can take so much of that away from Christ, as Christians. We can take a lot away from that because we always want to add to the gospel. We always want to add more to that. But he pairs it down to the very basic, repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, by the way, this area, in, this area where he was doing the baptisms, I always like to... Um, bring in pictures of what places and things look like modern day because all these things that we read about in Scripture aren't just cool stories. It really happened. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know this, but you can walk around and visit the places where these things happened. It's not just all mythology. So look at this. There's a map here. This map is called the uh, Madaba map. And it's actually a mosaic. This is just a snapshot. There's a bigger mosaic. It's on the floor of a 6th century Byzantine church in Jordan. <coughs> actually in Madaba, Jordan. And what you're looking at right here is actually, if you could read Greek, anybody read Greek? You could tell that. And what it is, it's a map of where the baptisms took place. Where John the Baptist had his ministry, where Jesus was ultimately baptized in the Jordan. And it's actually a map, so you can follow this along with the rest of it, shows the other significant events in Jesus' ministry. If you want to look at that, it's a Madaba map. But that, it's, it's a real place, and by using this and other sources, you can actually go to the part of the Jordan River where that was. Here's what it looks like today, as a matter of fact. This is, the, this is that region. Now, this is in Jordan. It's, it's along the Jordan River, but it actually is, is in Jordan that little shack in the middle there kind of looks like a shack, but that's a shelter where pilgrims come from all over the world to be baptized in that part of the Jordan. So this is what it looks like today. Now, one more, one more slide. That's what the actual spot looks like, at least, at least traditionally. That's where they figure that it was. Now, the river comes in from the right and actually exits off to the left. This is a little kind of a sub-pool where they were doing the baptism. As I tell you this because these things are there today. 
you can go. There's historical precedent, historical proof that these things happened at these places where Scripture says they happened. To me, it just lends so much realism and authenticity to, to Scripture. The idea of, of baptism or, or ritual washing or ritual purification was something that was common in those days. Jewish culture did it. Um, Egyptians did it. Greeks did it. Hittites did it. Um, it was a very common ceremony in those days. But the idea that's different from what John the Baptist taught is in those days the idea of ritual purification, the actual washing, the physical washing of your body. And it wasn't just a dunk, although sometimes it was. The idea was that that itself held the power, held the transformational power over your life. It would renew your mind. It would renew your body. And it's the act itself that was transformational. And what John the Baptist taught was different. He taught that repentance, inward repentance, is what causes the transformation. Inward repentance is where that came from. And then the baptism was an act, an outward act of visible purification. It wasn't that the baptism itself had power. The ritual of that held the power. That was the exclamation point on the end of the inward repentance that he taught. And that's where the power came from. So he introduced, by doing that, this radical idea that repentance and righteousness was more than just rituals or doing the right thing at the right time and saying the right words in the right way. It was so much more than that. But he also introduced this idea of humility, not sensationalism, not more lasers, more lights and and balloons and all this kind of stuff. It was humility and simplicity surrounding that message. Mark 1, 6 John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. This is the guy that everybody was... Here's a picture. Not an actual picture, by the way. But an approximation of what that scene might have looked like. Now, is that the kind of guy that you would associate with a herald of royalty? Normally, the herald or whoever the envoy was sent ahead of royalty looked very much the part of, I myself am very important. Look, I'm wearing fine robes and jewels. I represent the king, or I represent whoever this dignitary was. And they wouldn't certainly look like that at all. And yet John the Baptist did, and it was so much more about purposely not fitting the mold of what an envoy or some important dignitary's uh, messenger would look like. He didn't want to draw any attention to himself. He wore very modest clothing. In fact, what he wore, it says there what he wore, is really reminiscent of, of what was we see in Scripture that Elijah wore. Those of you who have studied kings in the ladies' Bible study, they studied kings. You know, King Azahiah, he sent his messengers out to visit this man, prophet, that was going on, who turned out to be Elijah. But this is what it says, 2 Kings 1, 7, 8. Then he said to them, what did the man look like? He's questioning his envoys. What did this messenger of God look like? And, he said, and they said to him, he was a hairy man with a leather belt worn around his waist. And he said, oh, it's Elijah, the Tishabite. So he knew, but going all the way back to then, the idea wasn't messengers of the Lord were all in their finest. 
They were very, very simple, simple men. Mark 1, 7, going back to John, and he was preaching. He, John the Baptist, he was preaching. After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to bend down and untie the straps of his sandals. Culturally, tying your sandals, if you had a servant or a slave, they would, they would often tie your sandals for you before you went out. But even then, in those days, uh, untying your sandals and taking them off was beneath even a slave. So he's saying, it, the one who's coming, I'm not even fit to do that for him. Again, heralding, heralding Jesus and trying to deflect attention off of himself. Even Jesus, when Jesus talks later, he talks about John the Baptist. And he says this, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's saying John the Baptist was a great, great human being. But even the least in the kingdom is greater than that. Teaching this radical idea of servant and humility being then elevated to the greatest. <coughs> Excuse me. But John the Baptist, again, going back to him, he knew that his destiny was not to draw any attention to himself. It was just to herald the arrival of the Messiah. In fact, to conclude this section, he says this, Mark 1.8, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he knew, and he was saying this, his, John's baptism could outwardly demonstrate repentance. And it was done after a declaration of inward repentance. But what it could not do is truly cleanse you from sin. And it could not, also importantly, impart the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus would. And that's what he's getting at here. They'll baptize you in the Spirit. So, from the opening eight verses of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, John the Baptist, and those who are chosen to herald his arrival are the very embodiment of humility. Servanthood, humility. They, they don't draw attention to themselves. And yet, somehow, huge crowds, as we read in the earlier scripture, came from all over. Jerusalem at that point was 21 miles to the west of this site here. 21 miles doesn't seem like a lot if you're us and you have a car and there's roads. Back then, you would have to travel that 21 miles, most likely on foot. Most of them did. And that is some barren land. It goes across part of, the, part of the desert. There are Bedouin tribes. There are all kinds of bandits that are in the area. It's not a safe journey. And yet from Jerusalem alone, 21 miles, if you expand that to all of Judea, it could be 90, 100 miles that they would have to travel. And yet Scripture says they all came. Now, probably not literally all came. That would kind of be a mob scene there. But people came and they weren't following the searchlights in the sky, and they weren't following the latest Instagram post or, or any, anything. They, they were drawn by this message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. John didn't have a light show or a smoke machine or even preach a feel-good message. That's not particularly a feel-good message. He didn't write any books. He didn't have Instagram posts. He didn't even serve coffee, for goodness sake. 
And yet, people came from all over because they were drawn by this message that was radically different than anyone else was preaching at that time. Radically different. And that radical message of servanthood in humility and love, that's where the power of the gospel arises from. That's where it comes from. We want to add all kinds of things as human beings. Even today, we want, to, we want to add all kinds of things to the gospel. And we immediately then jump to, well, what did the law say? And what did, what did Paul say about, about how this works and how that works? First and foremost, serve in humility and love. And people will be drawn to the message of Jesus. And then, once they have repented and been baptized, then we can fill them in on all the other wonderful things that come with being a follower of Jesus. But that's not what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist just said, come and repent and be baptized. And they did. The gospel is so much more powerful when it's preached in love and humility. The Roman crowd of that day would have had a really hard time grasping that. Okay, love and humility, how's that going to help me stand up to what's going on outside? And that's exactly what Jesus then began to teach through the rest of the Gospel of Mark. And that's what we'll talk about in coming weeks. So how did, going back to John the Baptist, how did he get crowds to see the value in repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Number one, he served in humility. Even from the way that he dressed and the way that he arrived. No giant entourage, no pomp and circumstance, in humility. And his job was to minimize himself and point everyone to Jesus. That's what he did. Every word, everything he did pointed everyone to Jesus. He didn't judge their past. So before he baptized, I wasn't there, by the way, but he didn't judge their past. He said, repent and be baptized. He didn't say, okay, let's go over your list of sins, and when I think you're ready, we'll go ahead and baptize you. That's not how it worked. He said, repent and be baptized. That's how it worked. He didn't judge their past. He didn't even ask about their past. But what he did do is he proclaimed hope and forgiveness over their future. And that's a powerful message. That is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rather than us as a church to try and add all kinds of things to it to complicate it, Let's boil it down to its essence. Let's serve in love and humility. And by that, they will know who we are. Amen? Next week, we're going we're gonna to learn about the baptism, about Jesus' baptism, and then followed immediately by temptations. We'll talk about that next week. But Lord, my prayer right now, pray with me, in fact, Lord, Let me be the humble messenger of the gospel of your son, Jesus. Help me to not add my own thoughts, my own influence, my own agenda into the pure and simple word of serving and loving and humility. Help me to be a reflection of who you want me to be, who you say I am, not who I think I am, certainly not who anybody else says I am. Help me to be a reflection of who you say I am. And as a disciple of Jesus, 
I am called to do everything first in love. So, Father, help me. Help me to set aside my agendas. Help me to set aside my fleshly inclinations and just follow the example given to me in the word. And by that, Lord, I just pray that that the things I do and say would draw people not to me, not to me and what I have to say, but would draw people to you because that's where the life is. It's never in anything I say and do, so let me fall into the background. Let me step back into the shadows and let the gospel of who you are be what everyone sees when they meet me. Father, I pray for everyone here hearing my voice now, whenever it is, that you would bring a divine appointment to us today, tomorrow, whenever you ordain, God, that we would have the opportunity to serve in love and in humility and to set aside all judgment or all notions of what we think is right and just simply love. And by that, Lord, give us the blessing of watching your gospel message take hold and change the world. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're gonna, we're gonna take communion together now. As the worship team plays on, we have, we have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for anything, anything that you're going through, maybe it's repentance. You need somebody to stand alongside you and help you pray with that. We have prayer team in the back, so look for somebody with a lanyard. If you're out there online, you can respond in the chat boards online and we will pray for you. In-house, you can pin note cards to the crosses. If you have a prayer request, you can just pin it there and we'll gather them together and pray over them as a staff later. But let's take communion together. If you are a follower of Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, we're called to take communion together every time that we gather. And so we do that every service, every time. And so here's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to focus on thanking, not just remembering what Jesus did, but thanking him for his example. The fact that he didn't stand up and say, hey, that's not fair. And hey, that's inconvenient. But he served in love and humility. And by that power, he overcame death and evil once and for all. And so by taking communion together, we align with that. We accept the broken body. We accept the blood of Christ. And we say, I accept what you did. And I will follow in your footsteps. And I will do everything to be a reflection of you to this world that needs your word. And so at the crosses, we have places where you can serve yourself. At the stations, you dip the bread in. There's juice at the crosses. You can dip it in and serve yourself or your family. Up front here, we've got wine and bread and crackers and Gabe and I would serve you up here so if you want to be served just line up there and we'll serve you but let's just do it in in joyful celebration and more than that aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ our Messiah amen